Welcome to our Called, Connected, Committed podcast. I'm Emily Norman and I am here today with our, our, our friend and returning podcastee, Alicia Lewis. Uh, Alicia, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast this afternoon. Brilliant. And also with the wonderful Mary Myatt. Mary um, will be familiar to many of you. She is a curriculum writer, speaker, and a real expert in this field who is bringing the best of what is being written and spoken about and bringing it together to make it really accessible to teachers and school leaders um, throughout the country. So welcome, Mary. Lovely to have you. Well, hello there. And thank you very much for including me. It's brilliant to have you, Mary. We're going to dig in uh, with some quotes from your fantastic book that you've written with John Thompson and lots of school leaders who are, are really engaging in the primary curriculum. Primary, huh? Have I said that? How, how should I be pronouncing it, Mary? Yes, it is. It is her. If I can just say a bit about why it's called her. Um, when we wrote the secondary one, um, which was curriculum conversations between subject leaders and senior leaders, uh, we wanted something that was catchy, that was going to um, synthesize and symbolize the gist of what the book was about. And um, John was just Googling the God of everlasting things one Saturday afternoon, and he came across the Egyptian God, huh. and her huh is the God of regeneration, creativity, and everlasting things. It just summarized what it is that we are uh, the space that we're trying to work in, uh, in terms of regarding the curriculum as a never-ending story and a beautiful piece of work. But the second element of her is that quite often John and I, when we're talking to people, we say, huh, we really didn't know that. And so <laughs> there's a, it's the playfulness there. We love that. Um, and talking about kind of these the never ending conversations, I kind of wanted to pick up on a, a quote from your book where you say informed conversations are the fuel of curriculum development. I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about the place of conversation in ensuring that we have the right curriculum for our children and young people. Yes. Yeah, so while there is a space and a place for us doing individual reading and research. If we want to really grow our understanding of the curriculum in general and subjects in particular, um, it's my view that that needs to be done collegiately with other people. And so the more we have conversations with others who are wrestling with the same ideas, who are coming up with new insights, who come across really rich resources, and we share those, then our collective understanding grows. And so at the heart of the huh, book, so we started with the secondary, and then there's the primary one and then at the end of June we have primary her two uh, which is about the leadership aspects of um, primary uh, uh, primary curriculum and then we're going to be doing some versions for alternative revision and SEND as well so they're going to be five in total um, but rather than just analysing the documents, we all know what the documents are. We wanted to bring it alive, John Thompson and I, uh, with our colleagues Laker Sharma, Emma Turner and Rachel Higginson to have the conversations with individual subject leaders and coordinators who were doing strong and interesting work. Now, um, what we found doing that is 
and offering them, um, you know, then turning those into our chapters, reworking those and putting the main ideas into the chapters is people are able to read those as a conversation rather than this is how you must do it, because <clears throat> there's no there's no one person who has all the answers. What we need are a number of perspectives that and then we find our own space in those that are going to make sense for the children in my setting. Um, but the other aspect of conversation is it's provisional, it's tentative, but through those conversations, particularly with a number of people, new insights and new gems and new um, ways of working emerge. And so while they might only be one conversation that people are reading in a chapter in the book or watching as a recording on the Martin Co site, because we've kept them all the recordings as an additional resource, is people are then able to bounce their own ideas off those conversations, deepen their own understanding, take away new ideas, but also are free to say, oh, I'm not sure that would work in my context. So it's this lovely, rich provisional space, which paradoxically leads to greater insights. And we simply can't do that, I would argue, on our own. It's brilliant. I love how invitational that is. And, you know, the fact it draws you in and says actually that you are an active participant in this conversation as well. And we need everybody to have a full and rich and diverse conversation. Um, I was going to ask a question in there, Mary, but I know you want to say something, so you go first. Yes, I just wanted to echo that point about it being invitational. So there's quite a lot going on there because it's there's both an expectation that people will want to be involved. Why wouldn't you want to be involved in these? Um, but also there's an assumption that everyone's got something to bring to the table, even if they think they're a complete novice. Actually, there are plenty of people working at the highest level in the creative spaces. Um, I'm thinking Graham Fink, uh, brilliant, brilliant genius creative um, in the advertising world. He talks about always remember to be in the space of a beginner because you've got so many questions and so many and you're fresh. And so the spirit of this is high challenge, but low threat. OK, and so there, there are. Let, let's just open it up for those lovely conversations. So yes, your point about it being invitational is really, really important. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, I was going to ask, obviously you've got the two books, one is primary focused and one is secondary focused. And that whole concept that you talked about of being very collegiate and collaborative, what are your thoughts on secondary and primary working more together in terms of that subject development? Because I know with a primary background, we often talk about and have that language of being secondary ready um, quite a lot when we talk about English and maths as subjects. But we often don't have that conversation about being secondary ready for art or secondary ready for geography. But actually, there is a real focus now on having real discipline within those subjects, equally as there should be for maths and English. So do you have any thoughts on where you might have seen it work well, where secondaries and primaries have worked together to really get that discipline and that high expectation and that ambition really for those other subjects beyond English and maths? Uh, yes, so there are some really good examples. It's not as uh, across the sector as I think that it needs to be. Um, so I would question the language of secondary ready. I know it's there. I know it's part of the discourse. Um, I would also say that needs to be balanced by um, 
the extent to which secondaries receive the children in primaries. Yeah. Right. So it's not that the goal of primary is, and I know this is what, what you wasn't what you're attending was so that they uh, are ready for secondary. This is about just their next stage, uh, and we want that to be as strong as possible. Um, but what worries me slightly about it is that each of those key stages, whether it's early years, key stage one, key stage two, all the way through, they are entitled to their own momentum. We're doing this because it's just great and really interesting. And then a byproduct of that is actually it does prepare them for the next stage. Um, but because what worries me is that that puts quite a lot of onus onto primary colleagues without necessarily the commensurate input from secondary colleagues. So in an ideal world, what would happen, and it does, it, this does happen in some cases, is that there are regular meetings um, talking about those subjects, uh, sec secondary schools talking with primary schools. Now, quite often I get some pushback from this from secondary colleagues who say, well, we have 30 or 40 primary schools. How are we going to manage that? To which my response is, I don't care how many you've got, you just need a sample. You mm. just need a sample so that you have got an idea of what standards are like in primary school. When this happens, I can tell you virtually without exception, secondary colleagues are blown away by standards in primary. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so when those are working at their best and most fruitful, um, you've got a lot of secondary colleagues not just saying, ooh, didn't realise what they were doing in primary, better raise our game in year seven and the rest of key stage three, but also um, secondary colleagues can then supply some of the more subject specific elements that are going to um, support subject knowledge in primary. But again, I'm really clear on this in is that the um, onus has got to be collegiate and collaborative rather than the secondary colleagues coming in as the great gods and know it all. Yeah, I can say I that because my background is secondary. But that is really important, isn't it? Actually, whenever I've yeah. done things um, looking at English, particularly when our secondaries come and engage with things like moderation, like you have said, they say, wow, the standards are really high in primary school. And I think that having that recognition and that awareness means the children can move on really successfully because actually in terms of ambition, they're starting with a point of higher ambition than kind of that, those lower expectations as they go to that next stage. But I think what I really appreciated what you just said about every stage has its own momentum and that expectation. And I think, I know you say it's one of your uh, caveats for the curriculum, actually the curse of the content coverage. Actually, at some point you've got to say, we can't do everything, but we make really sensible targeted decisions as to what we're going to do and how we're going to do it so that that is done really well rather than doing too many things and actually not being very good at anything. So is there any advice you can give leaders about things like breadth versus depth and how to make those choices really well? Yes, and so um, Dylan Williams very good on this and uh, John Thompson and I recorded a conversation with him recently um, about this. And Dylan talks about need to know what do our children need to know in any specific unit uh, that we're teaching and what is neat to know what what if we've got enough time or we um or we might set it up as a sort of homework task or whatever 
And so a, a classic one in mathematics would be in primary would be, you know, they, they really do need to know their number bonds. And that doesn't happen in one yeah. lesson. You know, it's a deep, deep understanding of, um, of, of relationship amongst other things. But um, so that is need to know. Need to know would be something like the Roman numerals. Mm -hmm. right. so we would do that, you know, but, it, but it's not top of the agenda. Yeah. Um, in the other subject, so, so <clears throat> having that lens of they need to know this and then that might be quite nice to do. Um, I think the other thing that's helpful to play into this is that we, because we want to do a good job, we want to give children as much as possible. <clears throat> but we have to recognise that the, the subjects, the disciplines are just, they would just go on forever. Mm. You've got colleagues at universities who spent a lifetime in academia in in a subject one aspect of a subject and they've hardly touched the surface so don't let's worry about trying to do everything okay what we've got as the foundation are the national curriculum subjects as an entitlement for all children for all children in maintained schools um anyone who's working in a free school or an academy there are additional freedoms but they need to be whatever they're offering their children need to be at least as ambitious as the national curriculum now if you look at the national curriculum documents beyond the english maths and science where there is a lot the foundation subjects are more than manageable in my view and experience having done a lot of work you know working up sample units etc the only one that's quite heavy in terms of content is history and that's because Michael Gove got his mitts on it. So there's more in there. But even so, a lot of it is um, optional. Um, but when you go to the other subjects, some of them are a bit thin. You know, I don't think there is enough guidance, for instance, you know, some of the art and design and music and that sort of thing. And you talk to colleagues and they agree. But actually, that gives you a lot of freedom. But the tendency is, is to look at the programmes of study and say, yikes, that's a lot forgetting that we've got a whole key stage in which to teach this and in key stage two that is four years mm. and so we pull out the bits that are going to be most fruitful and we don't worry about those that are not um nobody's going to die if they're not you know no child is going to die if they're not taught one bit of the national curriculum and we found this in lockdown you know um it was very sad that some of it was missing but actually it's not the end of the world so how do then we um, sort of tighten things up so that we can make sure that whatever we're offering our children is as fruitful, ambitious and likely to lead to long term learning? And this is where some of the insights from the cognitive science field and psychology can help us. So one of the things um, that has emerged, I mean, it's common sense, really, did we need the science to tell us this, but we know more and remember more if we understand the big ideas or the concepts that we're learning. And so the great thing about pulling out the concepts is there's plenty of them, but there aren't too many. So then people say to me, well, Mary, where do you find those concepts? And the starting place are the introductory paragraphs, the purpose um, of study in the national curriculum documents. The tendency is to go straight to the programmes of study to see what needs to be taught. But we need to spend a bit of time on those important statements because they're making the claims for the difference that this subject can make to children, both intellectually and effectively. Um, and so you're going to find things like democracy in history. 
So it's really important that democracy is a thread all the way through what we teach our children uh, where that's appropriate. Um, what happens then? So if we're teaching a unit, for instance, on ancient Greece, um, democracy really ought to be taught there. In fact, I would argue it's not a proper unit if you're not teaching democracy as part of that. So you teach the children about that, plus other stuff to do with ancient Greece. But then suppose later on children are learning about Magna Carta. That's also got democracy underpinning it. And so you've got an opportunity there to say to children, how's our understanding of democracy? How's it similar to and different from what we learnt before? So you're building it almost in this spiral curriculum, this vertically integrated curriculum that Dylan William talks about. You're building on what has gone before. And that also feeds into the Ofsted um, inspection questions, which is why you're teaching this, why now? You know, well, we well, it's the first time they've ever met this. That's why we're teaching it now. Or we're teaching this now because it actually is amplifying the earlier concept that we were teaching before. So that can start making it really, really tight. Um, and so those sorts of insights are really helpful to help us to tighten down what it is that we're going to be teaching. And so, again, another one would be migration in geography. So we're going to be exploring examples of migration across lots of different settings. Mm -hmm. But the underpinning idea is migration. But children are going to have a really secure understanding of that if that has been highlighted rather than it just being fragmented. So there's a great quote from Steven Pinker, brilliant cognitive psychologist, who says, um, you know, if it's not underpinned by these big schemas like um, concepts, then it's just like unlinked pages on the web. They might as well not exist. So they're really helpful for children's learning, which is the most important thing. But they are make our job as um, as we pull a curriculum together much more straightforward. So we move away from this idea of Jackson Pollocking the curriculum, just chucking more and more children and hoping some of it's going to stick <laughs> to being really, really disciplined um, about that. And the final example I would I would um, give in that is in my own field of religious education. If I'm teaching children about um, the commandments um, in Judaism, the 613 commandments. Um, if they don't understand the foundational piece of Jewish theology, which is the covenant underpinning that, the deal or the agreement or the contract between God and the Jewish people, it's just like random stuff that the poor Jewish people have somehow got to take account of. And then, of course, we would build on that at a different point when we're talking about Jesus referring himself um, as the new covenant. So that only really makes sense if you understand it in the Jewish sense as well. So you can see the power of these one big words just opening up this magical space for exploration. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Mary. And um, I love what you said about um, making a difference for children. You know, ultimately the curriculum is about making a difference for children to enable them to flourish throughout their lives. And um, one chapter that I, I know we were chatting about just earlier on and Alicia and I jumped straight into because we are huge fans of the wonderful Sonia Thompson um, and the work that she's doing in Birmingham. Um, she's just recently herself published a book around um, Ron Burge's uh, model of excellence and beautiful work and, um, and she teaches Latin um, to her children in Birmingham and we just love 
that. And I know Mary, you and I are um, a, a fellow classicist as well, we've discovered. Um, but what, what is beautiful about what Sonia says about, um, about why she's teaching Latin um, is this sense around, you know, making a difference. So she, you know, she talks about when, when we think of Latin, you tend to think of it being taught in private schools, but we were clear that we should also be able to offer the subject to our pupils. For us, it's a matter of social justice. It sends a message to our parents that your children deserve the best. And we, it's just fantastic, isn't it? And I'm slightly in awe of these year six children who can write two paragraphs of Latin. But, you know, this sense of how the curriculum is a vehicle for social justice and it, it, it gives a really clear indication of our expectations of what children can achieve and um, saying actually we believe that you deserve the very best of what the curriculum can offer we're not going to dumb down our curriculum we're going to support you to rise to the heights of the best possible curriculum that we can possibly offer you I think it's just it shines so beautifully out of that chapter I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about that Yes, and I think um, to reassure people, because it sounds so aspirational, might, people might be thinking, oh, goodness, is it beyond me? Well, um, Sonia, absolute genius, and her, her team are as well, but they're nothing if not pragmatic. And so how this came about was that they had had very strong Spanish as a modern language, and just with uh, various... Um, uh, maternity leaves, etc. You know, it, it, it wasn't backfield apart from I think in early years they still had it, and so they were looking for. They knew that they got a gap there, and they came across the classics for all. In fact, I think it was Birmingham University who were in touch with them to say, "Would you be interested in trialing this?" And so, without any classics background, the program that they were uh, part of and which is still going, classics for all. They provide all the training, all the materials, and there's additional funding as well. And so um, people need to be reassured that there are amazing resources out there if they decide to go down that route. There's also a very, very strong collegiate classics community where they, they all, you know, banter about, share ideas. Um, but the proof of the pudding is in the children's responses. So one of the things that Sonia and her colleagues found was that um, they've been doing it for about four years now, but they, the, the older siblings who'd been at St. Matthew's before they started it uh, were telling their younger brothers and sisters, oh, why have you got this and we didn't? They, their noses were put out of joint because they could see how much their younger siblings were enjoying it. So you don't get that kind, you can't manufacture that sort of response. And then we talk, lovely quick example, but we talk a lot about learning loss um, during the lockdowns. And that, you know, we can't deny that, but that wasn't universal. Some children thrived, some children did amazing work, mm -hmm. but there's still plenty to, you know, to be concerned about. But um, Birmingham University offered Sonia's school um, a course in Greek for their year six pupils, but any of them, well, of course, of course, they all said yes. And so they got in of course they did. children learning Greek. And so you can, imagine, you can imagine the impact of that. And so I just urge people to keep an open mind on this, because the other thing to be said is that the materials in those Latin courses, they are hilarious. They're very engaging. Mm -hmm. They draw you all in. We love Minimus the Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't it? 
So obviously, oh, that's brilliant. Thank you, Mary. Oh, I was thinking we have obviously talked about that, you know, and started by saying the curriculum is not a quick fix. Like there is so much to it. And if you're going to do it well, it's going to constantly change. It's organic. It should be growing and changing as life and the world and society and the children change. And like you said, if the teachers aren't excited by it or energized by it, the children won't be. So although we know it isn't a quick fix thing, I'm going to ask you actually, in terms of as a subject leader or as curriculum leads, what actually do you think are some things that can be tackled quickly? And there might not be things in action, but what quick fix considerations do you think need to be made? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. So we need to think both long term and relax into the fact that we're never going to be completely satisfied, but in, in a good way. Oh, that could be tweaked for next time. So that's one thing, um, because I worry that sometimes people think that they need to have all their ducks in a row before they get started. No, just get get started. Um, but the other thing is that um, you, there are some things that can uh, make a difference fairly early on if someone is just starting out, uh, they've just been given the role of coordinator of a subject. Um, the first is, is to um, go to those national curriculum documents. Uh, and I've summarised those to make them, you know, to foreground those big ideas. And so they're on my website, marymite.com under resources, and people can just download those. And that would be a starting point. Also on those documents that I've prepared are the links to the subject associations. So my argument is, is that everyone who is leading a subject, whether it's in primary or secondary, really ought to be a member of the subject association. And it should be paid for by the school. I'm very good at spending heads money. But <laughs> they're all very realistically priced and the range of resources and support that the best ones give. Um, so I'm going to, you know, for instance, the um, uh, NSEAD for art, um, DATA uh, for design and technology is fantastic. Um, NATRE and RE Today for religious education, they've all got great stuff. And this is their bread and butter. So there's stuff that we can take from there. Um, but also on those documents I've prepared is I worry about people going to third rate resources online that have not been quality assured. So one of the arguments I make is that we need to go to the authentic sources. So if we which which are full of beauty, which are accurate and which we can just share with our children as I share them with my children, my own subject knowledge grows. So to give a quick example. There are lots of very poor quality visual worksheets where children are just coloring in the inside of a mosque or um, heaven help us, the prayer mat, uh, deeply offensive to the faith communities and religious education or, um, you know, or in Christianity. So what what I'm suggesting instead, which I've got links to uh, on the market on marymart.com is um, so for Islam, um, the museum with no frontiers where we're using artifacts and art from the Islamic world or the Khan Academy, you know, to show the real stuff. So I would get started with those and just drop them in while I'm still working out those those longer plans. In RE, um, wonderful website called Visual Commentary on the Scripture, um, VCS, and so um, I'm reading a passage, say, from the first book of Genesis 
um, on the first story of creation. And I want to um, amplify that with proper art. Why would I need a third way worksheet? And so it's going to those authentic sources and just using them with children and seeing where they go. The other thing I would say is um, we know from the cognitive science that um, we know more and remember more if we've heard it in a story, our brain's yeah. privileged story. And so when we're teaching children new knowledge that we want them retaining in the long term, knowing more, remembering more and being able to do more, it's underpinned by a high quality text with a narrative element to it. And this is beyond literacy and English lessons and reading lessons. This is any new unit underpinning it with a story. So this sounds like quite heavy duty, but um, because I've been working on this for some time, um, I'm just about to launch a, a website which is free to access called The Teacher's Collection, where we identify high quality texts that are going to do the heavy lifting in terms of subject knowledge, beautiful vocabulary, but just really rich, lovely stuff to offer children and then some draft planning units around it. So a quick example would be in year six, the program of study, um, in science talks about children being taught about the theory of evolution and so fantastic book by sabina radeva who trained as a scientist retrained as an artist got all that lovely rich vocabulary the tone is appropriate i don't want my children patronized i want the i want the text talking to them as though they're intelligent human beings it doesn't need to be all whizzy and bangy um and then fabulous visuals because too much of what lands on children's desks is simply not good enough so again we've got some shorthand roots in there without cutting corners so those would be my starting places if i was starting from scratch um but then because i know people are worried about uh, inspection teams coming in no one has got their curriculum completely sorted if they have they're kidding themselves um and so um, what's important is to say, it, we know that we're strong, for instance, in design technology. We've had strong plans for years. We've got all these wonderful sketchbooks, lovely examples, but we're less strong in this subject. So we're just getting going. This is what we're doing. And this is our plan going forward. Um, because as long as we've got, a, as long as we know what needs to be done and the plans might change, that's all right, because that's life. It's when people say, oh, we haven't got anything. Therefore, it's all. Yeah, but. It's never a blame game. There are all sorts of reasons why a curriculum area or one part of it might not be very good. It could be people having been off ill or maternity leave, staff change. It That's just life. So not to worry about that, but to say this is what we're putting in place that is strong based on the, you know, what the cognitive science is telling us, which is basically common sense. Um, and then this is these are our plans going forward, but it will take time. So I quite a long-winded way of getting around that but I hope that was I hope that was helpful Alicia. Brilliant and I think what I think the common word which I take from all of those really amazing examples actually is that authenticity you know actually at every point it's being authentic you know you've said you know go to the actual go to the experts find that subject association because you will get that high quality pedagogy and practice and the resources again in everything in the stories that you use and the resources that you find if you're being authentic, then actually that is going to make a really big impactful difference to your curriculum. And I think that's something that in all of those avenues, that authenticity, and even in the conversations you have with Ofsted, there's no point in lying about it. 
be authentic and say where you are and what your plans are. And I think that is those three things are really, really helpful because they are that that long term goal has to always be there. But those are things people can actually do now that will make a real difference to them and to their children. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Mary, thank you so much. We've just loved having you on the podcast day. You've given us so much wisdom, um, but also I just love how you've invited us into a conversation. You're inviting teachers and school leaders all around the country to be part of this conversation, which is all about developing um, those really high quality curriculums that are going to make a huge difference to our children and young people in their lives. So thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for being with us today. And we'll signpost all of those resources that you've been talking about on our Call Connected Committed email so people can find those for themselves. Um, join us next time on the Called Connected, uh, uh, Called Connected Committed podcast. I'm Emily Norman. I've been with Alicia Lewis and Mary Myatt today. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you.